Welcome to Tell Me About Your Father's Daddy Issues, where we talk about who or what in recent pop culture and current events is or is not our dad right now. I am Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. We are super happy to welcome writer, journalist, cultural critic, occasional musician, the New York media and downtown institution that is Michael Musto. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's wonderful to be had. <laughs> you are our favorite entertainment news journalist of all time. Mm-hmm. This will be the last podcast. You can never top this. Yeah, we're done. Okay, I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get to like our dad stuff, it's so exciting that the Village Voice is back and that you are writing yeah. for them. Are you doing La Dolce Musto again? No, no, not maybe in the future. But right now it's just a quarterly print publication. Okay. Uh, Brian Calais, who owns LA Weekly, bought it. And um, uh, the first print publication just came out. It's in different kiosks around Manhattan. Also, my article is online, villagevoice.com, and it's a prediction for the Oscars type of article. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but let, it remains to be seen if I'll also work for the website or if I'll work for the other print uh, issues or if it'll go from a quarterly to a monthly, which is really the ultimate plan. Sure. Well, they would be insane not to have you writing every day online for them. Thank you. Well, yeah, Brian, uh, the new owner, was very uh, flattering to be my column through the years. He found it one of the highlights of the voice. He wanted me to be part of it. And he's also included like Peter Noel and some other old voice writers, as well as new people. So it feels very village voicey, the new issue. Like it does, it feels right. You know, I got to tell you one of the, I mean, I love your column. It was the first thing I read every week on a Tuesday, but then you started doing these features on a Thursday. And I remember one of my favorite things you ever wrote was when the Pope died, you just cut down all the kind of absurd piety of the media saying all of these people are just like crying about how sad it is the Pope has died, but here are horrible things he did. And here are <laughs> why these journalists are kind of being hypocrites. And I just was like, ugh, somebody finally said it. I'm always there to bring down the party. Oh, and, thank uh, God. To introduce truth to the celebrations. And yeah, I started doing web only pieces. Then I started doing a blog in 2008. It was La Daily Musto. Yeah. And my, column, my column started in 1984. It was a third of a page. Eventually it was a full page plus a daily blog. And they only wanted one blog a day at the beginning. And I just kept doing more and more. That's when we knew like print journalism was dying. We were on this treadmill, do more and more, keep this alive. Mm -hmm. I would do sometimes eight blogs a day. And then end of the week, I'd be like, okay, now I have to do a full page column for the paper. What the hell am I going to write about? Oh. You always pluck something out of the air, you know? Michael, I started interning at The Voice in 2005. That was my first internship after college. And I remember seeing you riding your bike past the Strand Bookstore and being really excited. You were my first celebrity sighting in New York City. Um, but I remember that you had a show on E! where you were part of a, a, a bunch of gossip columnists that would sit and hold up the actual physical publication that they had written in and talk about what was the article that they had done that week that was really splashy. And I loved it. It was so good. I think it like imprinted onto my brain. You know, the gossip show was very influential for me. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I, I, I pitched myself for the voice column and that's how I got it. And then in 93, I saw the gossip show on the E channel and I was like, 
oh my God, why aren't I on this show? Each columnist like Liz Smith, Richard Johnson, et cetera, had a segment where they just looked at the camera. Like you said, they would hold up the, the publication and do different items in their inimitable style. So I contacted the producer. He's like, yeah, I know your work. You'll have to audition. Uh, <laughs> and I did. I, I memorized that audition so well that I did it in one take. And they were like, you're in. I lasted for approximately seven years on that show. It was iconic. Mickey Boardman, who I worked with at Paper Magazine and who you obviously know very well. You're appearing on his Instagram show later. As the New York Times Magazine has just chronicled as well. I know. Well, also, I just yes. saw earlier yesterday that you guys were the most read story for the day. You and Mickey <laughs> and Lynn's uh, roundup reminiscing and looking at old photos from the past. But Mickey always said that he would be in airports with you traveling and that people would accost you over the gossip show. And I relate to that. It was, I mean, I went to the Bahamas and people were like chasing me down the street. I always covered celebrities and now some of their tinsel has fallen on me. But the thing I like the most about it is people who knew my writing could now put my byline together with my face and say, oh, I like your writing. Before that, if they didn't know, you know, who this was walking down the street, they couldn't do that. I prefer to get uh, recommendations and commendations for my, my writing. Yep. Fair enough. That's my, really my bread and butter. TV is like icing on the cake. And for also, as you said, your desire to tell the truth. You're really known. A lot of your pieces at The Voice kind of exploded because you were willing to talk about people that were perhaps sucked into different Hollywood churches or hiding their sexual preferences. Like you were really known for sort of calling that out. We're just calling out Angelina Jolie making out with her brother James at the, <laughs> at the Academy Awards and or Golden Globes. Like that is the kind of writing that sticks with me and has stuck with me all these years. Too. Well, it's, you know what? As much as we be fun of her, she was the most interesting person on the planet during that period. And when she had the vial of blood and she was dating That's Billy right. Bob Thornton. <gasps> yes. Talk about <laughs> change, metamorphosis. And sometimes I have to stop myself and say, why are you making fun of people that you really would celebrate? If she was running around a nightclub, I'd be like, she's fabulous. <laughs> I remember reviewing the movie Showgirls, and I, I thought, oh, what a piece of garbage. Remember Showgirls? Elizabeth yeah, Bird? of course. course. And my editor said, why are you trashing this? This is the kind of stuff you like. <laughs> and I said, you really have a point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, if you if you drop them into like a fabulous club somewhere doing like a, a slip and slide through like a jello shot onto a disco floor, you'd be like, I love Angelina Jolie. Give yeah. me more of her. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why I never got drunk. <laughs> Are you a sober sweetie? Do you not drink? Yeah, I mean, even when I did drink, because I had to drink because you walked into a nightclub, they literally, in the 80s and 90s, hand me a stack of drink tickets. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. even at the height of my drinking, I would have two drinks a night, and they were so watered down. You know how disco drinks are. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Mostly water and ice. But still, it would give me a light buzz, and it would socially lubricate me. In the 90s, I got on seizure medication, which I don't have to take anymore, but the doctor said, don't drink because it could screw with the medication at that point i just i'm very big on projects if someone tells me you have to do this i just do it i stopped mm -hmm. and i never had another one since and never missed it yeah. yeah and also does staying sober allow you to like really in the moment not be perhaps swayed by a, a substance or maybe being altered into thinking like someone is really amazing or some music that you're dancing to is 
really yeah. great and then you sober up and you're like what sure because the one time i did ecstasy i started hugging somebody it was like we ended up <laughs> becoming boyfriends i really regretted it oh no because <laughs> <laughs> the ecstasy wore off really quickly how long did you date for i would say on and off for about six months I ran into you at Splash once and I was like, oh, how are you? And you're like, oh, I'm dating this guy now. Ugh, now I just want to be single. You know, my parents, I know we'll get to my father later, but they weren't really happy with each other for a large part of their lives. So to me, that was a couple. And I always thought, why would I want to be part of a couple if that's what a couple is? Hmm. Michael, your, your mother, she passed away in the past few years. Is that right? Yeah, over five years ago. But your father had, had passed away. Yeah, uh, they both lived to 95 which really scares me. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> that means I have a lot of time left. <laughs> you, you and Mickey are going to be raising hell in Boca Raton. And raising children. And raising children. <laughs> You're going to become dads at 75. Yes. Babies having babies. We were never sweet booked. <laughs> but yeah, my parents lived to so fucking old and um, they came to terms with each other. I came to terms with them. So it was kind of a beautiful thing. It's like a TV movie with Meredith. Meredith Baxter Bernie or uh, <laughs> Marky Post. Where, where did you grow up? I was born in Manhattan, but uh, grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, which is a very old school Italian-American residential neighborhood. At least it was. It's changing a lot now. Gay was not on the radar there. It was not on the menu. It was not talked about. So when I realized I was gay, which is when I saw the show Tarzan with this hot guy, Ron Eli, in a loincloth. So I was like, I'm gay. I love this. Uh, <laughs> I knew I had to go, go to the city. You know, this is before Brooklyn really was the city. Now you have to go from Manhattan to Brooklyn. I'm a two-time bridge and tunnel person. <laughs> You're a survivor is what you are. You know, you finally get out of That's Brooklyn right. and they're like, oh, Brooklyn's fabulous now. You have to go back. <laughs> when did your father pass away? How old were you? It was um, 12 years ago. So he really saw you become you and, and really thrive and, you know, become this this big lightning bolt media figure, was he proud of you? Did he talk about your writing with you? He would always say he was proud, but I never was sure how he really felt about me. But after he died, first of all, I found a box, which has uh, Michael's achievements, and he kept all my press clippings and items oh, and that's achievements. Lovely. And then I also found a letter he wrote when I was a baby, like, Dear Michael. Wow. I don't know if he ever thought I would see it, but I did. I found it. What did and it say? A beautiful letter about how he loved me and how great I was and how I was like, hit with the ladies. Boy, was he off. <laughs> <laughs> how old were you when he wrote it, do you think? Or... After my first birthday, he was Aww. talking about how I behaved. I was the hit of the party. I'm so popular. Everyone loves yeah. me. And I was like, wow, I would have liked to hear this when I was grown up. But, <laughs> yeah. but there was a lot of pride. That's like kind of a dream. Like your, your parent dies, you can't get any more answers, but suddenly you found a ton of them. I mean, the great thing about my dad is he couldn't go to college. He had to drop out of school to help his father. They grew up during the Depression. His father owned a bakery in Little Italy. When it came time for me to have the choice of going to Columbia, I had a scholarship and I did work study, but we needed dad to kick in some money. And my mother didn't want me to go. She wanted me to live at home and go to Brooklyn College. My dad knew how important it was for me to go to a really good school and he kicked in the money. And that was to me, the pivotal thing about my father. I got a dorm room. Eventually I grew up because I went to Columbia. I was 16 mm -hmm. when I entered. You were 16 when you went to college. Yes. And I'd not been anywhere. I'd not done anything. I was wow. 
just like throwing a kid into a pool like here learn to swim you were studying journalism they didn't have an undergraduate journalism class so i studied english literature i worked for the barnard bulletin because the spectator wouldn't have me then the spectator saw my work in the barnard bulletin and said we want you so i became a theater editor and a critic and i sat in on graduate classes in journalism there's a columbia graduate school of journalism yeah and those were lame i realized i don't know <laughs> I'm, I already know more than everyone in this class. I don't need to go to graduate school for journalism. Did you immediately hit the town, so to speak, once you were a 16-year-old up at Columbia? Like, were you out in the village and running around? Or what were you like when you were in college? I was such a conscientious student. I wasn't much of a partier. Mm. But during the summer, I would just walk around the village with a friend, and we were both in the closet. But we were attracted to the gay stuff. We wanted to be in the middle of it. At one point, I went to a Columbia gay mixer, and I was so nervous. I wasn't really out. And I was like, oh, I hope nobody notices me. Well, guess what? The gayest guy on campus, Bruce Cooper, I love you, Bruce, grabbed me, <laughs> grabbed me by the hand. The second I walk in, he goes, hey, everybody, welcome the newest member of the Columbia gay community, Michael Mundo. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. That's one way to do it. Well, wait a minute. Nobody's laughing. Nobody's pointing. Nobody's saying vomit. It's okay. This isn't that bad. And so I owe everything to that guy, Bruce, because there was no turning back. I was out, even though I had no experience being gay. I didn't know what it meant to be gay. Yeah. Have you been somebody else's Bruce or mentor? Yes, a lot of celebrities. I mean, Ellen DeGeneres, Jodie Foster, Anderson Cooper, Rosie O'Donnell, really? I out at the mall. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, with their consent. <laughs> oh, with their consent? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. There were some actors that came to me to out themselves. But most of them would go to like advocate. They wanted the cover of advocate or people. Everything's changed now. They just want a very quiet coming out. Anderson Cooper mm -hmm. very quietly on uh, Andrew Sullivan's blog. He's a right wing guy. That's right. That's how they do it now. It's not the screaming anymore. But I was screaming, come out, because I was part of Act Up. Yeah. And we were in the streets screaming for visibility, for people to notice AIDS and to pay attention mm -hmm. to the community. I guess with Anderson, he had like actively avoided. I mean, he read a memoir and then didn't put any mention of his sexuality in it. And it's sort of like, how do you go, oh, I did that, but now I'm a different person? Because they all kind of want to go, oh, I was always out, but I just right, didn't want exactly. to talk about it publicly. All my friends knew. Sean Hayes was big on, I was always out. It's like, no, not really. Uh, no, no, you weren't. You have no. to say it on the record to be out. You don't yeah. just go to the Glad Awards with a guy. That's great, but just say it. If, it's not, if it doesn't mean anything, who cares? Then just say it. Yeah. And uh, I did a cover story for Out Magazine. It's called The Glass Closet. And had a guy holding a mask of Jodie Foster and someone holding a mask of Anderson Cooper on the cover. And uh, the point was they're out, but they're not out with a capital O. They won't say it. Mm -hmm. They both came out. And, and Rosie O'Donnell came out. She hosted uh, over three years ago. I did a roast. I was roasted as a benefit for Callan Lord. Rosie O'Donnell gave the first speech and was brilliant. And she said, well, this fag here had a problem with me being a big dyke. <laughs> and it was kind of in front of me but then she said but thank you for bringing me into the community michael Aww. and we've been friends for a long time now we we buried the hatchet in donald trump yeah <laughs> anna hache called and thanked me for a piece i did uh after i had outed i didn't even out ann and ellen they were making out in a lesbian bar in new york yeah they, they, if you remember they were holding hands at the premiere of an anna hache film volcano yeah and the media was spoon-fed, hey, folks, they're lesbians. The media was afraid to even go with it. Yeah. So I got a call that, guess what? Ann and Ellen were making out in a lesbian bar. <laughs> so I went with it, and I worked in coordination with Page Six to break it. 
And Anne Hage later, when I did a cover for paper on Anne Hage, Anne thanked me. She called and put Ellen on the phone. <gasps> They're not mad at me. Wow. wow. What do you think about Ellen now? Uh, Canceled Ellen post abusing her employees. Well, I love the whole, you know, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I wasn't very nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to be nice now. It's like, oh, that's just so beautiful. I don't know. It's like Scott Rubin now is another case. Scott Rubin is the big Broadway movie producer who got oh, busted. Yes. Not only being not nice, like he threw things at people and they went to the hospital. There was a protest yesterday down Broadway in Columbus Circle against Scott Rudin specifically. Uh, Do you have Scott Rudin stories, Michael? There have been rumors since the 90s. There was even uh, a character in a movie, Swimming with Sharks, based on him. Yes. And everyone in the business knew. Uh, for me, my only problem with him personally was that he's very stingy with press tickets so that I would automatically get invited. <laughs> but he always had the hot shows, like the Larry David show, Raisin in the Sun, uh, To yeah. Kill a Mockingbird. That problem pales next to the problem of the way he really tortures and harasses underlings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And bravo to Karen Olivo. She's the actress from Moulin Rouge who said, I'm not going back to protest the silence in my industry around Scott Rudin. Everyone was afraid to say anything. When Playbill even wrote about it on their site, they, they said Karen Olivo leaves because of, you know, they wouldn't say Scott Rudin's name or even in the long subhead. They waited till the body of the article because they don't want to lose his advertising. And just yeah. like business it's about yeah. he had to step down from broadway before he stepped down from his film and television project he's not stepping down from anything he's not stepping down he's still the producer and he's still making the money how is he stepping down if he's yeah. dealing with his behavior great uh if he's not having those one-on-one -on -one interactions like before great but uh, he's not giving up he's not retiring I know. I wonder what that means. Yeah. And as you say, Michael, it's all about money because if it wasn't, everything would have sort of grinded to a halt with Harvey Weinstein, that he was actually a horrendous sexual predator um, and rapist. But it's shocking to me, and I don't know why, that like, how are we still here? We're still dealing with the, the angry producers throwing things or the governor who thinks it's okay to ask his young assistant if she's a virgin. It's like, how did you experience Me Too and the fallout of all of this? Yeah, Cuomo. And, and not think you should at least just stop and talking. Think, like, yeah. does this maybe apply to me? It's insane. Well, with Harvey, I mean, it took a long time, but there was a result. The company is kaput. He's in jail. Yeah. End of story. And one of the good things about the Oscars this year is there, no, there are no smear campaigns. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one site that usually has me write about the Oscars said, we're not interested this year. There's no controversy. Interesting. It's because there's no Harvey. He's in jail. Wow. Yeah. All the, he would have been smearing all the rival uh, movies. But in, in general, all of these stories have to do with abuse of power. Power is intoxicating. Mm -hmm. Andrew Cuomo thought he could get away with anything. He was riding high on the fumes of being crisis daddy during COVID. Well, abuse of power is what Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues is all about. So Matt, take us there. If you'd like to support this podcast, please head to patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather, where for as little as $3 a month, you can access bonus dad content and other fun extras. We're going to dive into who our dads were not this week or in the you know like last 10 days or whatever or so if someone or something is not our dad it means we think that person or thing has recently been infuriating tragic cruel or just a massive disappointment Aaron. okay 
staying in Hollywood. You guys have heard of Philip Burke, the 88-year-old president of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, Mm. eight terms. He's been there for 44 years. He was just fired this week for sending a racist company-wide email describing Black Lives Matter as a racist hate group. This comes after Time's Up revealed that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, who puts on the Golden Globe Awards, currently has zero Black people among its 87 voting members. This is a little surprising that it's taken this long to get Big Phil off the stage because in 2018, Brendan Fraser, the actor, in an article in GQ that was called Whatever Happened to Brendan Fraser, he says he was sexually assaulted by Burke in 2003 to no consequence. The incident is detailed in GQ and it's really disturbing, so I'm not going to say what it is, but here's what Brendan said about it at the time. Quote, I felt like a little kid. I felt like there was a ball in my throat. I thought I was going to cry. I felt like someone had thrown invisible paint on me. I mean, like truly scarred him. He's remained on staff this whole time. It's interesting. He is from South Africa, a white South African. Mm. Um, Is that why Brendan Fraser like just didn't work? Like, what happened to Brendan Fraser? That's what he said, yeah. It was contributed to it and his distaste for Hollywood in general and the whole process. Um, So that reminded me a little bit of Scott Rudin, who, of course, has been in the news. And I guess Burke misses the good old days of apartheid. Yes. (laughs) I think so. Well, the Globes is sort of a semi-joke anyway. They've gotten more credible through the years. But basically, if you throw them a lunch or send them a gift bag, you will win. Hmm. Right. It's true. Only 87 members and so much, you know, credence given to the Globe. He is just not my dad. Michael, who have you got? I was going to say avocado toast, but I was, <laughs> no, but I would say access journalism. Access journalism. Access journalism. Say more. Tell us. Well, access journalism is, uh, there's someone at the New York Times, I won't even name her, but you know, like you, you, you kind of try to show both siderism. That's another bad cliche now uh, where the Republicans aren't that bad, or we have to show two sides of an issue. If it's an issue like gays have no rights, that's not really debatable. Right. I don't need to hear the other side. Access journalism are the people who just are so desperate to be included, whether it be at the White House or in the red carpet, that they'll put whatever press release is issued to them. And I have no respect for that. My father wasn't like that. My father told the truth. My father didn't do things just to be liked. He just did things that you had to do as a decent person. Mm-hmm. So you're not talking about Maggie Haberman, just to clear that oh, up. Oh, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why am I protecting her? I'm so happy that like Ivanka and Jared chose not to live in New York because Maggie was all yes. set to cover their every, their every move and cover right. the social swirl of the Trump children. It's like vomit. Ugh, I know. The vomit swirl. They could leave it to Miami. Um, that's so true Michael about like when we're talking about gay rights like there isn't really another side and I always wince when people use the word tolerate we need to be more tolerant and tolerate Um, each other it's like 
no, I think we should accept each other. <laughs> like what the tolerant. word tolerant just means like I, I don't like you, but I stand you or I Yeah, like I won't scream at you. I'll hold it inside. I don't even need you to accept me. Just don't deny my rights. Just that's right. Actually that's yeah. my thing. Don't run around saying not wearing a mask is your civil right when you spend most of your life denying real civil rights to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which kind of leads me into my next to who wasn't my dad this week caitlin jenner amazingly is back and she uh is a massive and i think tragic disappointment once again (laughs) she's filed paperwork to run for governor of california because there are calls for gavin newsom to be recalled um caitlin who as we know lives in a bubble of wealth and privilege thanks to her proximity to the kardashians and her career as an olympian supported Donald Trump in 2016. She appears to be one of those celebrities who just decides to run, but they go straight to the top. It's like, don't do local office. Don't have any kind of pattern in your life that shows that you have concern. Go straight to Senator, go straight to governor. Well, like California have Reagan and they have Schwarzenegger. So there's yeah, a that's right. And so that's the thing. It's like, is this like a Gary Coleman election bid just to keep your hand in, you know, like give her something to do? What is I like Cynthia Nixon. You like Cynthia Nixon? Well, she ran for the Democratic candidate for yeah, New, yeah. New York governor. Yeah. I liked her as a candidate, even though she had zero political experience. I, I did too. I voted for Same. Her. I voted for <laughs> <laughs> Same. Well, you know, but the thing about Caitlin is she actually hasn't voted really at all, let alone as a Republican. Yeah, never. She doesn't vote. Really? Really? Yeah. No uh, voting record. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, but she's been enough damage control for Republicans, and I'm tired of her. I didn't realize. It's like, why not? Don't you read? Did you not realize Trump uh, banned trans from the military and had dozens and dozens of laws to take away trans rights. More than 117 are currently Jesus. like being talked about, and she's mentioned none of them. It's insane. I'm not buying it. And I don't think she'll get even as many votes as Kanye got for president. Exactly. Yeah, I think so, too. I think she's not reading anything because she's too busy flying her little model helicopters around in fields in Malibu. Probably killing people. And like killing people on PCH. And got away with it because she's white. She's trans, but she's white and rich. I know. It'd be so nice to have a trans governor of California, just not Caitlyn Jenner. Busy, what have you got? Talking about getting away with things and people abusing their power. We've had this already as not my dad from another guest, but I would like to just reiterate that the police in general are not my father. It bears repeating. my God. What happened in Columbus, Ohio this week is so horrendously upsetting. On Tuesday, I think minutes before Derek Chauvin's guilty verdict was read, a 16-year-old girl who had called the police to help her because some girls were trying to beat her up, the police arrived and they shot her four times because she had a knife. And I just feel very strongly that if you are a police officer and you don't know how to break up a fight between teenagers, I don't give a shit if one of them has a knife. You don't yeah. shoot them. All yeah. they're doing to me is displaying their, they're showing us their cards here a bit, which is we are absolutely here to kill you. If you and we're absolutely here to kill black and brown people. Well, also they're, they're scared of black girls. As we had the uh, guest prior Natalie Cash Peterson on our show a few episodes back, she talked at length about the fact that 
Black children are robbed of their childhoods. And the second they become 10, 11, 12 years old, they're instantly seen as predators. Um, But however, this this cop who claims that he shot a 16-year-old girl, Micaiah Bryant, to protect her from hurting another girl with a knife, is just absurd. There are high school teachers out there every day who break up fights with weapons probably worse than little kitchen knives like she had. And they don't shoot the kids. And you know why they don't shoot the kids and kill them? Because they see them as human beings. Right. They bought Dylan Roof some Burger King for his execution. Exactly. And they they applauded Kyle Rittenhouse and threw him water bottles as he marched down the street with his AR-17. So anyways, I just want to I just want to reiterate that if if you do not know how to de-escalate a teenage fight without shooting someone and killing them, then you don't deserve to be a police officer. It's pretty bad in America when Pat Robertson is the voice is a voice of reason on gun control with the police as well. Was he? On his show, the police officer shot somebody and she couldn't tell the difference between a taser and a gun. He's holding these two things going, how can you not tell the difference between these two? There's something desperately wrong. There's something desperately wrong when Pat Robertson is on your side. It's mm-hmm. like, well, a stop clock is right twice a day. <laughs> but also, if they do have a taser, why not use a taser? Exactly. Right, exactly. Right. Use the taser. Why do you have to end their life? It's the second instance where a taser would have been a much better option than a gun, point blank. But yeah, yeah, uh, we need we need serious police reform, and even I would say defunding and reallocation of sources to healing communities. Yeah, the end. Um, why don't we go through who our dads are? If we decide something or someone is our dad, it means that we think that it or they have recently shown big boss energy tempered by compassion, intelligence, and or vulnerability. Biz, what have you got? Oh my gosh. All right. Well, uh, my dad this week is the 1988 movie Field of Dreams starring Kevin Costner. Wow. Pick that too. <laughs> <laughs> It was a favorite at my household, and I watched it this week for the first time in a long time um, to commemorate my my own father, who died three years ago yesterday. And I watched it, and I was ready to hate it. It definitely has written and directed by a straight man vibes, including you know Kevin Costner as a farmer who hears voices that tell him to make a baseball diamond on his property while his family is struggling to make ends meet and his wife is like, great, I'm in, I support you, whatever you need, babe. Um, And I wanted to hate that about the movie, but there's so much sweetness and tenderness and it's actually pretty progressive in a lot of places, including a scene where Kevin Costner and his wife go to a, a PTA meeting where they denounce book burning and his wife stands up and screams, that uh, a woman who's there advocating for the burning of books is a, quote, Nazi cow, which I really enjoyed. And she said that if they don't do a better job of fighting, uh, you know, censorship and conservative, quote, family value horror, the world will descend into a fascist fascist, uh, state. And I thought that that was pretty spot on for Field of Dreams. Also, just the palpable hotness Ray Liotta plays Shoeless Joe Jackson. He's always been so hot to me. He's like light dusting of acne scars on his cheeks. <laughs> yeah. He's so sexy, so rugged. Kevin Costner is like at his hottest in this movie. Um, the guy that plays his dad is super hot. 
Um, <laughs> so I just was, I was very moved by it. And also because all the guys were hot. moved by it with a capital <laughs> M because all the guys were hot. Okay. Did you cry? I did. I totally cried at the end when Kevin Costner is choking back tears and asks his ghost dad, hey, dad, yeah. how about a catch? That The guy that plays his dad is still doing kind of like anniversary promotional stuff around this movie. He wrote a book about it. The day that he got cast in the movie, his own father died. So it was really a big, um, a personal, it was a personal thing for him with his father. But yeah, it's just, and it's also a movie that we watched. We had it taped because we would get free HBO like once every six weeks um, when I was a kid. And so we'd tape all the movies that got shown. Then we had it taped and it was like just something we watched over and over. And the dialogue's kind of um, imprinted on my brain. And also James Earl Jones is incredible in it. He plays a sort of J.D. Salinger-esque writer who's become a recluse, who's hopefully not as big of a dick as J.D. Salinger was in real life. But um, yeah, I just want to say Field of Dreams, great movie. Check it out. Okay. Mm. And get ready for to be moved by the hotness. Thanks for sexualizing your dad once again. <laughs> next, Jeez, that's great. Next up, how hot is everyone in Goonies? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, who um, do you feel has recently shown Big Boss energy tempered by compassion, intelligence, and or vulnerability? Who or what? What noun? Oh, the noun I'm going to go with is mandate. Not only because it sounds like dating men. Mandate? I actually hate the word because I hate all these cliches that pop up nowadays, and that's one of the biggest in the discourse, which is a big cliche. But anyway, I'm going to go with mandate because I feel like my father felt he had a mandate to be my father. I always thought he was kind of absentee and not didn't care. But when I think back, he always made sure we were taken care of. He had a million different jobs. Mm-hmm. He was a TV repairman. He had a dry cleaner. He uh, worked for Standard & Poor. He had all these kind of, he was a financial whiz. So he was able to do office jobs or just clerical or, you know, practical jobs. And we never worried. He told me that uh, once you've been in a foxhole in World War II, nothing is ever bother you again. So while my mother was kind of overprotective and so worrying about everything, my father once said to her, you worried your whole life and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Wasted your whole life worrying. Nothing bad happened. Wow. <laughs> and I was That's... like, wow, I'm, I'm going to go with his point of view over my mother's because he just kind of floated through life. Everything was taken care of. We always had food on the table. I always had clothing. Emotionally, I, it was very complex. So I wouldn't say it was the best childhood. I was not the happiest kid, but um, mm-hmm. he accepted his mandate as a father. Did you have like heart to hearts with him? Like, it seems like you know a lot about how he felt about you because of the box and the letter and everything. But did you have like man to man discussions with him? No, I mean, this was a rare nonverbal Italian American household. Okay. Mm-hmm. They were more like wasps or something. Mm hmm. They didn't talk. My parents were mad at each other as I was growing up and they would just sort of grunt at each other or only talk when they had to. My father would never, he would come home and he would go, Michael, which is Italian for Michael. And I hated being called Michael. I was like, my name's Michael. <laughs> and then he wouldn't follow it with that, like, Michael, what happened in school today? Nothing. So I was like, something's wrong here. But it took me a while to realize he was a good father and uh, he just wasn't about conversing once when i tried to hug him he he got to hug me back very awkwardly he's he froze he stiffened because mm. mm. italian american men did not hug other men that way 
We talked to um, Barbara Feldon in our first season who said the same thing. Barbara Feldon from Get Smart, and she said she went to, like, she was afraid to touch her father's hand even when he, as he was dying because she thought, knew that it would make him so uncomfortable. Yeah. And so she was trying to show her love for him, but it was like that physical, yeah, like men of a certain generation just couldn't do affection physically. And then my father once, like, as he was leaving my apartment after a visit, he just goes, love you. And he, like, ran. Aww. He was embarrassed. <laughs> he said it. He got it out. He yeah. got it out. And speaking That's of Barbara Feldman, she was sitting alone at an autograph show in Persephone. Uh, and I was like, oh, let me talk to her. I love her. She's she amazing. The handler who said, who are you? And I was like, I'm proud. It's like, I wrote up this event, Chilo Theater for the New York Times. Like, I'm legit. She goes, where's your wristband? And I was like, well, the owner doesn't. He just lets me in. He doesn't give me a wristband. Everyone talks to me like Pam Greer jumps on me. I get more attention there than a lot of the celebrities. Yeah. Like husbands. Yeah. Well, <laughs> seen on TV in any shape or form. And she actually shooed me away. Barbara felt it was forlornly sitting there alone, no fans. <gasps> that and is shooed me away for an interview. My and God. then I saw Tim Lange from Love Boat, and he was a doll. So Barbara, get yourself a new handler. You deserve better. You're wonderful. Truly. Oh, she really is. Everybody should look, go back and listen to her episode if they haven't, because she really does paint a portrait of that era of father. And it is shocking to me. I mean, as you said, Michael, is referenced to being in World War II. Like, they just mm. came back from the war with no resources or emotional, like, cultural emotional resources. Like, therapy was not a thing at the time. and With full PTSD. With full PTSD and said, go have a, go raise a family and figure figure it out. And my parents didn't grow up at a time when you talked about feelings. It was mm-hmm. literally about survival. They would sleep five to a bed. If they were hungry, they would eat a mustard sandwich. It was just right. about mm-hmm. the day. It was not how mm-hmm. feeling. How can we deal with problems? They didn't deal with problems when I was growing up. Nothing was addressed. Nothing was talked about. And you think about Italian families as, oh, Abadanza, and they're dancing. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. not in my house. But my mother was the best Italian cook, and she was all about feeding and nurturing. And here, take a doggy bag. You know, there was something missing from the household. How was coming out to your parents? What was that like? Well, since we never talked about anything, I certainly was not going to sit them down and say, I have to tell you about my sexuality. And I also learned that the less I told my parents, the better. Whatever I told them about my life was to know good, like what good could come out of it. My mother would be worrying. My father would be criticizing it. Mm-hmm. So I never told them, but I showed them by example. I introduced them to all my friends. They all came over for the Italian food. I took them to all the nightclub parties. They realized I was gay. Similar to my father saying, love you and running away. My mother from the other room in my apartment once said, I love gay people and I hope they're all happy. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, that was her you. way. I'm going to start crying now. That was her way of telling me that she yeah. That's beautiful. And that was the best they could do. They couldn't sit down and talk about anything. It, they weren't those kind of people. They were that's like okay. the good enough parents. Like that's kind of the yes. phrase I remember hearing like somebody say, like, my parents were good enough for me. Mm. Like, that's you know, right. That's mm-hmm. awesome. I'm glad that you had that with both of them, that you had yeah. those moments, even though it sounds like it was unhappy at times that you had that, the love you and the comment from your mother in the other room and... And I'm lucky that they live long enough and I live long enough that we can have that. Some people are not yeah. so lucky. Your parents die when they're young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't get to make amends or tie up any loose ends. Yeah. Matt, take us home. Take us home, Matt. 
Okay, so Fran Drescher is my dad right now because oh. the nanny is back on HBO, and so I descended into a Fran Drescher deep dive, which oh is, by the way, so fun and easy to do. The nanny <laughs> is so the show is does not age apart from the celebrities it's like a who's who of the 90s when you watch them they got everyone they could possibly get in like lisa Loeb, but they also got like lisa elizabeth Loeb. taylor elton john oh i love that she casts spalding gray as her therapist like she's just <laughs> that's the that's thing funny. about her that i think is so extraordinary is that her show should be considered canon in the same way that the golden girls is Whoa. um and i also think she's one of those people who could sort of straddle deeply mainstream mainstream sitcom comedy tv and also be like this profoundly self-aware profoundly intelligent woman like but she's like a survivor and i found out a bunch of things that she survived so for a start she survived being raped at gunpoint in her house mm. um which she took 10 years to talk about in fact apparently she was so afraid of like being startled that they had to bring in they had professional laughers in the audience when they were recording the nanny, but then she had to like have them taken out because it was too startling for her. Really? But she got over it. She had uterine cancer, which she got over. Um, she got over two divorces, one to her current, her creative partner, Peter Mark Jacobson, but one to a man named Velayapa Ayadurai Shiva, who Ooh. she was married to for two years from 2014 to 16. Here's who this guy was. He was an engineer and politician with four degrees from MIT. He ran against Elizabeth Warren as a Republican in 2018, and he claims that he invented email. What? Um, oh, it's no. a claim that Gawker... Me That's Gawker. I mean, sure. Gawker would relentlessly ridiculed him for this, and then they were sued by him under the umbrella of the Peter Thiel-backed Hulk Hogan lawsuit, no. which was brought against AJ Delario, who we interviewed a couple of weeks ago. Oh, shit. And that's how it all comes full circle. He actually got $750,000 in defamation money out of Gawker because he claimed absurdly that he invented email. Seems like she got out. She probably could see the red flags, but she, I think, got out before it got really insane. What I like about her, I met her once at a party. I was standing there with Anne Slade, a, the, one of the old school dinosaurs surviving the crunch socialites with her blue glasses and perfectly quaffed Slater. hair. Did you meet her, Michael? Slater. Sorry, that's what it was. Anne Slater. Thank you. Me, Anne Slater, Fran Drescher, and Randy Jones from The Village People. And like, I kind of was like, I don't know what to say to Fran Drescher. And she just turned to me and went, I just bought an Egon Sheila. And I'm like, oh, great. She's just like so much smarter than maybe she appears to be. I don't know. She's hmm. just such a boss. She's such a boss. And she's like, it's amazing that we can just like dive back into her show right now on HBO. So Fran Drescher has been my dad this week. She's basically playing Bobby Fleckman. Let's face it. Final tap. That's right. Smell the glove. <laughs> smell the glove <laughs> they're doing a broadway version of the nanny apparently it's in oh, the, the works wow. now apparently the nanny has as just like field of dreams has aged well <laughs> yes no it, it absolutely has it's really funny i saw people doing screen grabs on twitter of them uh, some throwaway joke from the you know original air the whatever the first season or second season where the teenage daughter and the family comes home and says something about meeting Woody Allen or bumping into Woody Allen on the street and Fran responds you stay away from him so I felt like that was very uh 
There she is, Fran's a prophet. That's right. Michael, did you watch? Uh, sorry, did you watch the documentary? Alan versus Pharaoh. Alan versus Pharaoh. No, I honestly think they're all crazy. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. think they're all crazy. Yeah. I'm sorry, that's a cop out, but I, mm-hmm. I don't think it's so clean cut. Oh, it is such a good documentary. It just like changes everything because they have all of the audio mia and woody would tape each other's conversations with each other on the phone and there's just a lot of i mean yeah woody allen molested Mm -hmm. his daughter full stop but michael i remember you you describing the thing that you think that's so weird funny about celebrities and sort of universal is that they'll scramble to the top of a ladder screaming look at me and then when they're at the top of the ladder they scream don't look at me and i kind of feel like Mia Farrow, she's like got this like celebrity headspace. Like she dated Sinatra. She's never really dated someone you don't know yeah, of, right? That's all covered. Not to discredit her in, in, in any way. Dory Previn was mad till the day she died that Mia ran off with her husband Andre. Right. But Dory wrote a song about beware of young girls. That's right. That's right. Uh, with Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. she was younger than his daughter Nancy. Yeah. Even <laughs> Nancy, because Nancy was too old. Yeah. And her brother is a pedophile, I think, in Mia's. prison right now. Uh, this is not Mia's fault by any means, but her most brilliant film is Rosemary's Baby, directed by a, a, the most famous pedophile. But somebody said, um, if, you have, if you're supposed to believe all victims, why not also believe Moses and Soon Yi? They have very vivid and credible stories yeah. to tell. It's also in the doc, which I highly recommend. And what's interesting about it is it is Alan versus Pharaoh. He mm-hmm. kept suing mm-hmm. her. And yeah, Michael, they yeah. do go into Moses and Sun Yi, but Moses more is a very sad complicated character but i think they did a good job of saying kind of what likely happened with moses aaron who have you who have you got well this is kind of an easy one but cardi b is my dad this week um 38 days after the grammys Wisconsin Republican Representative Glenn Grothman gave a speech on the House floor that said his office got complaints about Cardi B and Megan B. Stallion's performance of WAP at the award show, during which they danced around and referenced their own sexual pleasure like decades of musicians and pop stars before them. Wake up, FCC, and begin to do your job, Grothman said. The moral decline of America is partly due to your utter complacency. So, again, 38 days after the Grammys that no one watched. (laughs) And I made myself watch the anemic as hell, you know, wet-ass pussy dance that got everybody so upset. And it was, you know, it was boring. It was fine. Cardi responded on Twitter wanting to know why the attention wasn't on Kenosha's shooting of Jacob Blake last August. He was shot in the back seven times, leaving him paralyzed. That gets me so mad you don't even know, Cardi tweeted. I think we all have been on edge this week since we have seen police brutality back to back, including watching one of the biggest cases in history go down due to police brutality. But wait. This is what state representatives decide to talk about. Governor Tony Evers later chimed in the debate. I'm not an expert on that genre of music. I thought that there needs to be more whores in this house. 
of representatives. <laughs> representatives. You know what I'm saying? I mean, on what planet are people calling their their Wisconsin local politicians to complain about what they're seeing on the Grammys? Well, I looked that up and there was one official complaint from the district that that House representative, you know, is representing. It was more he used it as a way to talk smack about uh Kamala Harris is a fan of Cardi B's, so he was trying to, like, say something about, you know, the end times with morality. This has been going on from the beginning of time. Elvis Presley was going to corrupt all the kids. Big and Janet mm-hmm. was going to corrupt all the kids. Right. Just to note, the city of Milwaukee alone in two years gave out $21 million for police misconduct settlements. Those are the civil lawsuits that come if you survive your encounter, you know, 21 million in two years. What a liability. (laughs) Yeah. That falls to the taxpayers. Although apparently Wisconsin has, um, or Milwaukee has, uh, insurance like you have some kind of police brutality insurance that pays those settlements they were thinking ahead thank you so much for joining us thank you tell me about your father and daddy issues are produced by aaron hosier elizabeth thompson that you guys and me matthew phil if you agree or disagree with our pick or you have any of your own sound off in our instagram comments or send us a dm we are at at tell me about your father follow us at tell me about your father on social see you next time Bye.